I'm J.R. Woodward. Welcome to our social landscape, where my guest is Dr. Athene Venkata Ramani. Athene is a practicing physician at the University of Pennsylvania Presbyterian Medical Center, an associate professor of health policy at Penn, and a faculty research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. What led me to reach out to him, though, was his work as the founding director of the Opportunity for Health Lab, since their research revolves around the impacts of economic opportunities, social policy, and other institutional factors on population health, something I've had an interest in since I was a graduate student at Arizona State. It's no secret nor surprise that those in the lower social classes suffer from higher rates of morbidity and mortality than those in the higher social classes. But Athene's lab is taking a novel and holistic approach to understanding the mechanisms responsible for this relationship, with plenty of policy suggestions along the way. After a brief bio, we jump into the Opportunity for Health Lab research. So thank you for being here. And would you mind maybe just briefly telling me um, just, you know, a little bit about your bio and what made you decide to um, take this path that you're on professionally, but also what you choose to study and research? Yeah, sure thing. So I'm a, I'm a practicing clinician. I do hospital medicine at Penn Presbyterian Medical Center, and I'm also a health economist. I got into this because, um, actually, it's funny, I started as a basic scientist or an aspiring basic scientist. Uh, but I really enjoyed the social issues and kind of things that uh, patients were saying. And I was always interested in bringing that uh, to data in a rigorous fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so economics, I think, uh, kind of sits in between some of the harder sciences in some ways uh, in its orientation, but also kind of the squishier things like the ethics. What do we do? What, you know, how, how do we make decisions? And it straddles that um, all of the uncertainties, all of the normative questions. Um, so it was a really interesting place for me to be. And it kind of fits with what you do as a physician. You're faced with a lot of different tough things. Um, what I'm doing right now is I'm interested uh, and I'm researching the relationship between people's opportunities in America, their economic opportunities, their social opportunities, the kinds of things that are codified in the American dream and how all of that relates to what's happening with the health of the country on average and in different population groups. Uh, I came across that question because Patients were telling me things about how they were less motivated to work on their health or they had kind of ascending mental health issues uh, relating to the fact that they lacked hope about the future and uh, and what might happen to them. Hmm. Uh, and so as part of that, uh, we have a lab called the Opportunity of Health for Health Lab. There's me, there's a sociologist, there's a psychiatrist, health services researcher, and a number of trainees. Uh, and we study things, anything that relates to this construct of opportunity uh, and health, um, that's anything from the closure of industrial plants, uh, all the way to affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And we try to draw analogies between those different experiences. Okay. Yeah. So you, you already talked, hit on two or three things I was going to uh, ask you as we go. So we'll, we'll get to the, the affirmative action piece for sure. Um, the American dream, do you think, um, this isn't a planned question. I just thought about it as, cause I saw it come up a couple of times that, the these people it's a sad story of you tell uh that you know these people have kind of just thrown in the towel because the american dream is no longer true for them or was it ever true for them yeah i i think it's a combination of both right um we have uh parts of the country um, i'm thinking about the rust belt where there were these for many years there was um 
I think a lot of opportunities for upward mobility in the way society was constructed and the types of jobs that were available. And uh, with the decline of manufacturing, a lot of that disappeared. And so you see pockets of deep despair and lack of opportunity. Um, you There are some groups, uh, and I'm thinking about Black Americans in the United States or uh, American Indian, Native Americans, for whom there have been a lot of historical and policy forces that have existed for uh, decades and generations that have made it harder for people to ascend the economic ladder. And if they were to do so, it comes at some physical uh, and mental cost. Right. So there's a case where opportunities have been restricted for a long time. And then there, there are places where opportunities have ascended. Um, the healthcare sector has provided a number of jobs for lower income women of color in particular. And so here's a growth industry where uh, potentially will continue to grow as you and I age and will need yeah. home health aid, for example. <laughs> right. So I, I think it's a lot of those things. One key thing in there, JR, is the way the American dream is kind of pitched by some people is that it's about a person, that if you do the thing, you can make it anywhere in America. And right. what our lab is increasingly thinking is that, and not just us, but others too, uh, the American dream is not necessarily a feature of people. It's a feature of places, places, the policies, the leaders, the, the, the norms, the type of social connections, those things all exist together to create opportunities for people and people have their own potential um, and places allow people to meet their potential and even dream of, uh, of, of greater things than they might have dreamed otherwise. Mm-hmm. So our story is very much about places uh, and what happens to people within them. That's how we think of opportunity. That focus on individuality then also leads to uh, if they're not succeeding, then that's who you blame. You blame that person. They didn't try hard enough or they didn't do this or they didn't take advantage of those opportunities because it's, you know, ignoring all of those structural you know elements that are in place as well. Um, I heard a quote a long time ago. I don't remember. It said uh, roughly the poor cannot be expected to live long because they lack the resources to live right. I don't know if it was this old, I don't know, Hippocrates or Seneca or somebody said, Mm -hmm. I can't remember. But what do you think about that quote? Would your research, what would your research conclude about that quote, this link between uh, resources and health? I think that's one that we see over and over. Almost every study that that has tried to um, look at the associations between those two, whether they're correlations or whether it's the cause of resources on health has shown that more people... um, uh, either who have more resources or given more resources through programs or who are allowed and able to move to places with better resources, they almost invariably get healthier. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I completely agree. Um, the able to the ability to command resources and to access them is one of the things that I think links opportunity to health. So if you have more opportunities, you can access more resources, that makes you healthier. But there's another resource that I think is psychological that we talk less about. Um, than material things, uh, but it's it's hope, right? So places that have higher opportunity afford more hope. And that itself is both motivating uh, and changes health behaviors, but also um, can directly impact something like mental health. So I would posit there's a second thing uh, that is not mentioned in that sentence um, or second element, which is mm-hmm. the immaterial stuff uh, that matters too. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly that that has held up. Uh, I don't know if, if, if that was Socrates, that's... Uh, it was it was either Hippocrates, Hippocrates yeah, uh, 
or, or the or the Roman Seneca. I just can't remember who it was. Um, I should look for it, but I I just remember it stuck out to me because it was so clear, and it was such yeah. a precise way to put it. Um, yeah. What about the uh, interaction of race? Here. Um, I assume we can't say one race or class is a proxy for the other. Do they mm-hmm. both do they stand out in different ways in the research? Or are you are you uh are you able to really whittle it down to social class as as primary? So I think those two things, um uh so let's talk about racial gaps. I think there's some uh groups that have historically had uh, experienced worse health outcomes and black Americans and American Indians are, are kind of top among them. Um, if you look at kind of what we, something we call excess mortality, the number of deaths above what we would expect if things were everyone to follow a similar pattern, um, these are groups that always have more deaths than we would expect. And part of it is certainly uh, one of the mechanisms that generates that is access to resources and the kind of the uh, correlation between uh, race and class in the United States. That correlation um, is one that uh, comes as the result of a number of historical policy choices. Um, So for example, groups that are not able to maintain generational wealth because there are forces that take wealth away. You can think about the Tulsa massacre or you can think about kind of uh, what happened to to Native Americans through their history. That prevents kind of, of passing on that those resources from generation to generation and the acquisition of new resources. So it becomes, it's a problem of race ethnicity that is now becomes a problem of class, um, which is a separate problem. But in this case is one big mechanism that generates this inequality that we see. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been improvements. Like if you look at the black white life expectancy gap up until COVID, we had about 20 or 30 years of consistent narrowing. It didn't quite, converge, uh, but it did narrow. And there's some states where for black men um, who are, you know, you know, uh, adult black men, they were able to fully narrow that gap between black and white men. Part of it is that non-Hispanic white men were not doing well either um, for for many years, but those gaps have narrowed. And, um, but we saw that there it's, it's a bit precarious because the elements that are there to kind of live well, as you said, are, are sometimes fleeting. So when COVID-19 came in, there were groups that bore the brunt of that. And the life expectancy gap between, say, Black and white individuals uh, widened to a point that it hadn't been uh, until prior to 2000. Wow. So we we undid a lot of progress um, because some of the elements that it requires to make true sustained progress uh, were not there. Okay. The, difference, the, the differences we see right now with social class, race, and health... Um, Go back before, say, 2000. Has this always been a gap? Has the gap uh, always been pretty wide, or is it always kind of fluctuated depending on, say, economic conditions or something like that? You know, because you brought up a nice point about different policy decisions, like the the in the, in the 30s, the Social Security Act, it providing all these things, but not for farm workers or domestic servants. You know, so like people of color, yeah. so there's already kind of behind in that. From mm-hmm. that, has it always been there, or is it? Um, make kind of hit or miss. I think there's always been, there have always been forces that have prevented the gap from closing completely. Okay. okay. Um, but there's all there's been a lot of forces for good. So since the civil rights era, if you look at the black white longevity gap or the infant mortality gap, whatever 
um, you, you want. We did pretty well for many years in slowly chipping away at that. Okay. Um, the relative economic position of these groups has improved um, up until about the 80s, I think. And then at least the health gaps, we continued to narrow them for a while. Um, but there were more forces kind of working against that, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so deindustrialization in the 80s, the war on crime, um, HIV AIDS, I think this set back a lot of um, kind of uh, marginalized groups mm -hmm. um, in terms of their, their health. And so you saw a stagnation uh, in these gaps for, for a period of time. Uh, things picked mm -hmm. up again and started to narrow in the 2000s. Uh, but then COVID, I think, re really re revealed the fractures in society once more. Okay. Um, so mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's always a push and pull, I think, you know, to kind of put it, I don't know, maybe crudely, we were winning for a while. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we can win again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to the hope issue. Uh, a mm -hmm. couple pieces that have shown up in your work that I would ask you just to maybe say a word or two about the relationship between social class and what you call deaths of despair. Yeah. So deaths of despair coined by Anne Case and Angus Deaton. Um, and just for your listeners, uh, that's a, they have seen, they define it as a combination of uh, suicide uh, drug overdose deaths and alcohol related deaths. Our conception of that is that those are indeed important things to look at, but there are other deaths too that can follow um, from changes in the economy that adversely affect people. Okay. Um, if we pick one of those things, let's pick uh, drug overdose deaths. Part of it was um, we were very liberal in how we supplied opioids for many, many years. And the supply of opioids has been shown to robustly predict what happened to the opioid epidemic, at least through 2010, when uh, early 2010s, when fentanyl came in. Okay. So we sort of threw gasoline at a fire. But there was the other side of it, which is why was society so receptive to that kind of thing? And that has a lot to do with things that were happening in the economy where people started to fall farther and farther behind. So Case, Deaton, and many others have shown that the, the group that has kind of fared worse uh, in terms of debts of despair and debts in general are, are folks without a college degree uh, relative to folks with a, a, a four-year degree or higher. And part of the reason is that the relative economic position of that group without a college degree has declined over time. Um, some have blamed automation that has replaced um, workers uh, with, with robots. Some have blamed the outsourcing of jobs to trade. Some have blamed policy choices that have for example, made the minimum wage in the U.S. Uh, in real terms, the federal minimum wage, to be lower than it was uh, back in the uh, in the 70s. And then states have pursued their own different things. Some states have uh, pursued policies that seem to be correlated with better health. Others have not. And the the kind of the, the federalism has shown this uh, very wide divergence in the health uh, trajectories of people living in different states. So I think that's where the despair piece of it comes in. What we try to do is we, we're thinking a lot about how does automation, how does plant closures, how do these policy choices kind of shape these trends that we see uh, in the um, uh, in American health? Mm -hmm. Great. Did you ever see the movie, uh, the, the Michael Moore movie, Roger and Me? I did. It's yeah. like it's, I think it's his first movie. Um, yeah. 
real movie, but uh, boy, it's just perfect how it, it shows what happens with that deindustrialization. Mm-hmm. Just the, the prison population goes up, you know, the school yeah. population goes down. I mean, it's just it's great. So many links. So in your view, um, what needs to happen to alleviate some of these disparities? Uh, you said it, it's cyclical and a lot of it uh, has changes. We get the gap close, but never, never close it. Uh, and what do you think are the impediments to those potential changes? Yeah, so um, it's it's it is a phenomenal question. Um, it's going to take a lot. Um, the way we think about it in the lab is: what are policies that can jointly boost economic opportunity and population health for for a variety of different groups? Um, and we have a we have a bunch. So things that we know that work that that fulfill both objectives. Um, there are things like the expansion of Medicaid. Um, which has both uh, positive labor market and health outcomes. Um, other benefit programs like the like SNAP, mm-hmm. environmental cleanup, um, good for health and actually good for upward mobility, especially for kids who are exposed to clean air when they're younger. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, wage uh, policies that um, improve economic security, uh, for example, reasonable minimum wage increases. Um, those seem to have uh, both. Uh, benefits in terms of economic uh, opportunities for people, as well as um, th- there's good research showing that um, a, a reduction in suicides after minimum wage hikes at the state level. Wow. And then, you know, there's um, policies that I think have tended to provide power, uh, political power, and more of a voice to groups that historically have lacked it, um, tend to uh, be good for health too. So uh, women's suffrage back in the early 20th centuries, uh, some states actually uh, adopted suffrage before the, um, the 19th Amendment. You saw actually an improvement in child health as a result of those policies. And the reasoning was um, the new voters were um, voting for public goods that were actually good for health. Mm-hmm. So we're working on a project now that ties the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which increased representation and um, uh, voting among Black Americans during the civil rights era. We're t- we've actually we're actually showing that that is um, that ha- that was instrumental in reducing black white caps and infant mortality. Uh-huh. So giving political power to groups that lacked it allow a, a command over resources. Um, and our argument is that all of these policies, they're not zero sum. They don't come at the cost of something if you're looking in the long run. Right. Um, for example, there's um, if you if you do the accounting for Medicaid, as some economists have done, um, providing a robust insurance program and access to healthcare for children uh, is actually a program that pays for itself. So the um, marginal value of public funds are a way to kind of think about mm-hmm. the value of spending a dollar today is infinite. You're getting more than that back. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of easy wins. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it, I think, is we have to think about policies that um, we haven't really done. So in like Roger and me, right, the community that kind of faltered because of a, of a factory closure. What do we do with those communities? We sort of let them go. Yeah. There are some policies. There was something the Obama administration, Trump administration, that try to um, create tax breaks for distressed areas to bring in businesses and other things. Those have some modest success in increasing employment. But if we can invest in places in ways that are, I think, more robust, thinking about the totality of the determinants of health, uh, especially when they hit distress, I think that's um, that could be a new way that we... Um, that we sort of approach these problems, thinking critically about how we automate certain tasks. So the economists Daron Achimoglu and Simon Johnson have an interesting new book 
where their argument is like, rather than having automation displace workers, can we redirect this stuff, AI automation, whatever it is, to complement workers and support them? Mm. Um, that's interesting. That's a sec yeah, that's a second. And thinking differently about the labor market. And the third thing I think is, are there social policies and stuff we haven't tried? So there's now 30 studies looking at the uh, impacts or, or the 30 ongoing studies that are looking at the impacts of something uh, guaranteed income programs where people are getting income every month. Uh, the idea being that if there's economic distress or something that displaces their job for a period of time, people are supported. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to, there's 30 studies on the United States trying to understand what are the various effects of those programs on opportunities, health, so forth. And then anything that we can do to expand education, we, we typically think about college education and early childhood education, but those middle school years really matter. Like, mm -hmm. are we mentoring people? Are we giving, are we providing uh, adequate support for people to dream big and realize those dreams? And are we thinking, I think, creatively about vocational education for folks who are, for whom a liberal arts education is maybe potentially not a great fit? There are lots of things that can be done um, to educate folks for skills that will be necessary in the coming years. So can we think more broadly about that? Yeah. How do we get there? I think uh, there's a lot of disagreement sure, sure. Um, uh, about these various things. Part of it is if we, if we, if we agree that opportunities for people and health, people's health are important goals, part of it is just understanding that policies that we think of in separate domains, like minimum wage or affirmative action, they're all kind of related in that they have, they have wide effects on various dimensions of life. Um, and these effects come through very similar mechanisms. So part of this is like, let's think more broadly about what is the benefit of a policy. Uh, if, a, if the government is just scoring a tax policy on the basis of revenues that it brings in, it might ignore what the tax policy might be doing for other things. So let's think of the whole scope of benefits. Second thing is, if you agree with me that opportunity matters, then I might suggest someone in the Midwest who loses their auto plant job and a kid in high school who now is has less hope because of a change in affirmative action policy, he thinks that the world is stacked against him. Those two people may have a pathway to poor health that works through the same mechanism, which is hope. If you can accept that, and if you can think of these cases as an analogy, maybe we think about these policies analogously too, instead of trying to divide them and try to uh, you know, think of them as very different domains. More holistically, so, kind of? More holistically and drawing by analogy, right? Um, opportunities matter for everybody. The way we give opportunities to people will differ based on different population groups, the age of the person or whatever. But if we agree with an overarching goal, maybe we'll have less disagreement about these, you know, these various little ways that we might achieve that goal. Okay. Um, how are you on time? Are you okay? Yeah, I have, a, I have about okay. three minutes. Yeah. Okay. This is a tough one for just three minutes, but uh, maybe it'll be easy one. But can, can capitalism as it's currently practiced get us to that spot here? How do we make our capitalism that we're practicing now less vicious? Because if health is a commodity to be bought and sold, it would just make sense that the more money you have, the more health you have, and it's just going to continue to mirror each other. So if we if we had to if we keep our our current capital model the way that we go about it, this is the economist question for you. Um, how can we make these changes that some people might view as not in their economic best interest? Yeah, so I think um, in in a capitalist system, people respond to incentives. So part of this is. So there's two parts. One is changing the incentives to 
to basically work towards social good. That's part one. And the second part of it is um, creating ways for everyone to participate in the capitalist system. So let's talk about the healthcare system as an example, right? That, that's where I live, but this is a good example for the remaining time. So the healthcare system is, you know, over 50% of it is now funded by the government, right? It comes from Medicare and Medicaid. So that's a lot of money for the government. Yet we retain um, competition uh, between insurers and and uh, between practices, whatever it is. The competition is good uh, because we want people to get better. Um, we want people to innovate new drugs. We want all that. So I would not get rid of it. But it we don't. The incentives are not there to be inclusive of people who may not have access to to care. The incentives for a hospital, for example, are to grow in size and merge with other people. That's kind of the setup of the world. That's how hospitals survive. But those mergers have not translated into better patient outcomes. They've not translated into better worker outcomes. Uh, and it's possible that they've actually depressed wages in other industries because mm -hmm. such a large employer, they're able to bring down their wages because they're more of a monopoly. And so everybody brings down their wages or they're passing their costs on to other consumers, other industries. So here's a situation where if the incentives were changed, you retain the competition, but if you change the incentives towards producing that, you know, um, better health outcomes, um, it's possible that you can, con you can continue to compete, um, but in a way that competes for things that we all want. It's really hard to do. So they have tried all sorts of ways to pay hospitals, for example, for performance or value. And it's none of it really works. And part of it is because the bigger incentives about how hospitals and healthcare organizations can survive still remain. Okay. And so there will need to be an overhaul of all of this, but yeah. you can keep competition. You can keep, we have a large government involvement in healthcare. You can keep that too, but it's just kind of shifting who does what in ways that um, make the competition about improving the health of patients and populations uh, rather than the, the financial margin of the hospital. Okay. Um, so it's, it, it's a, it's that's a one hour conversation or more right. and it would be uh, not with me it would be with my wife who's the <laughs> expert on all this but um, but that but that's an example of where i think you know you don't want to there's good things about capitalism mm -hmm. like i'm sure. you know i'm it's more like can you make it inclusive for right. people and um can you redirect the incentives of the system so that it's something that we would all ex ante agree would be good for society and yeah. i think that's that's possible Okay. Yeah. See, I, I think I'm just cynical about it because it sounds almost like the fox garden, the chicken coop, you know, like the people that are able yeah. to make those changes are the people that are benefiting from how it is currently. So where's the motivation for them to make those changes? And I just, I don't want to throw up my hands, um, but I, I do get kind of discouraged about it sometimes. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, I totally get that. But if you look, if you look back, right, during the industrial revolution, when we're, um, workers were able to consolidate power, come together, bring, um, you know, create the early beginnings of unions, but they were basically able to, to public action, put pressure on um, employers in urban areas and municipal governments to actually engage in sanitation and like reducing pollution. Um, so the impetus for a lot of the big public health improvements came from the ground up because people were able to organize and create power. Every time we've granted power, either through the Voting Rights Act or suffrage, we have seen social change that has benefited mostly everybody. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you bring voice to people that lack it in the current capitalist system, that then they are in the system with a stake, with a lot of chips and, and are able to bring it to the table in ways that create positive social change. We've done it. I think we might be on the cusp of that again. 
and uh, you know, you're seeing this drive towards unionization, right? Like, yeah, I think sure, people sure. are starting to think about this, thinking about the, the, the health of workers or thinking about structural racism. These are all things that we really talk about, but we are talking about in the last few years. You know, like a lot of this happened in the 20th century early on uh, in ways that I think benefited us today. Sure. Um, sure. Okay. So I'm, all right, I will hope. always be positive. <laughs> yeah, you're giving me, giving me hope. So I feel better. Good, good, good. All That's right. the idea. Um, I, I, so I do you have like a, maybe a headshot or fresh photo or something that you could email me that I'll use when I post it. Um, there's pictures yeah. of me out there, but I don't want to go against copyright stuff. Uh, and then usually I, I do, uh, I'll write up a little narration and I'll talk up a little narration and then a little conclusion at the end. Uh, and I usually play some kind of music with it as well. Do you have any musical preferences? What's your, your genre of the day? Oh man, I've, I've been, um, well, it's, it's, there's a lot of like Rafi cause we have a young kid, but, um, when we don't do that, there's a lot of like seventies, eighties, nineties, American rock. So if you're in okay. what, and British, so there's, well, British Zeppelin okay. and then full stop, but, um, there's been some Van Halen. All right. Yeah. So, uh, whatever you, importantly though, Sammy Hagar Van Halen or David Lee Roth Van Halen. Oh, Sammy Hagar Van Halen. Oh, terrible. Terrible. If I'd known that, I'd fucking hung up a long time ago. But one of my best buddies, that's his favorite band. I mean, that's a hard He that's loves a hard the question. Sammy Hagar part. I'm like, oh, come on, man. He likes the David no. Lee Roth part too, but I'm like, David Lee Roth was it, man. I love you. He was a show. Well, that guy. Not that, yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll put something on there for you. All right. Thanks, Satine. I appreciate your time. Yeah, I appreciate you I, I and do, yeah. uh, what you're doing. It's wonderful. I love it. Take All care. Right. Bye bye. <laughs> You've been listening to an interview with Athene Darv and Connor Marani on our social landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. Thanks to Athene for carving out some time. He wears a lot of hats, so I'm grateful for the opportunity to chat. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of the blog is to engage in public sociology. So for me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. But it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. The podcast started with When the Levy Breaks by Led Zeppelin and finishes with DOA from David Lee Ross days and Van Halen. Sorry, Athene and Rob, I just couldn't pull the trigger on the Sammy Van Halen. Finally, if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at our Thanks for listening. Oh,